St. Mark. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and honey. And he proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me, not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's the gospel of the Lord. Seminary, as you might imagine, has occupied a great deal of my educational life. Heck, if you, if you ask my wife, it's occupied a great deal of my actual life. I enjoyed seminary each of the three different times I went. The seminary, like any other trade school, has certain points of emphasis. I mean, they want to teach you to think theologically, for instance, which is to say they, they want to train you to view the world through the lens of a theologically informed faith. When the country goes to war, for example, they teach you to think of it not first in political terms. What will this mean for the party in power or, or in economic terms? What, what will this mean? Uh, what is it going to cost me? Or even in practical terms, what, what, what will this mean for me and the people that I love? But rather in theological terms, what does God think of war? How does Jesus view violence? Sex, money, politics, justice, all of these things are meant, according to seminary, to be passed through the filter of our understanding, the relationship that we have to God, and God's relationship to us as expressed in Jesus. Now, another biggie that they teach you in seminary centers on one word. This word has to do with the minister's relationship to the world. Um, in particular, their relationship to other people. You walk into pastoral care uh, counseling 101, and you're all ready to learn about how to fix people, and then they ruin your day by telling you that fixing people isn't your job. 
And, and you say, wait, what? What do you mean? I, I thought fixing people was the job. I mean, that's why I came. The world's messed up, needs fixing. I'm the one for the job because I know how the world ought to be. I have a particularly good sense of how people ought to be. And they say to you, they say, sorry, young master Freud, but that's not how it works. One of the most important things we can teach you has nothing to do with fixing anybody. It has to do with one word, and that word is boundaries. What? Huh? Boundaries, my friend. We're here to teach you boundaries. Now, why is that such a big deal? Well, it's because you can never help anybody if you don't know where you end and other people begin. Ministry, they teach you in seminary, is about having good boundaries. I mean, otherwise, you, you, you get the idea that people have hired you to come in and fix them, or, or perhaps worse, that you're the main point of everything that goes on. But people, generally speaking, don't want to be fixed. And those who do want you to fix them, trust me, you, you, you learn very early on that there's not enough transactional analysis or systems theory in your ministerial toolkit for those people. Boundaries. You've got to know your limits. And I guess I need to be upfront uh, right away about the fact that we had some very important boundaries breached this week on Wednesday. The attack on the Capitol building terrified all of us, putting in sharp relief the evil intentions of those who would destroy and kill to keep a potential tyrant in office. The doors and barricades that we saw overrun on epiphany of all days were not only a breach of physical boundaries, they, they were a breach of the very ideals that we hold about our common life and the way that we govern ourselves. People with Confederate flags and, 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 and Jesus in their mouths committed violent, treasonous acts in an attempt to wrest control of the government in the name of freedom. But I got news for you. That's not how it works. Isaiah says, Woe to you who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put sweet for bitter and bitter for sweet. See, boundaries are important for keeping out evil, right? I mean, we've, we've rarely seen a truer instance of that than Wednesday as Congress people were forced to flee into hiding for their very lives. But boundaries can also be used for good, right? I mean, too many people in our country and our world have spent their lives beating their heads against walls that were designed to exclude them, to keep them out. In fact, I would argue that much of what precipitated the insurrection in the, in the Capitol this week was the increasing fear on the part of a lot of white people that black and brown people and LGBTQ people and Muslims and Asians and the disabled appear to be knocking holes in walls erected to keep them out and having to cede ground to live with those people apparently proved too much and they were willing to tear down anything that stood in their way, largely in the service of reconstructing, rebuilding walls that Jesus died to break down. But 
we have to be clear that healthy boundaries are a good thing. They're important. But, but, but Mark messes up the whole boundary thing in our gospel for this morning. L let me set the stage for you. The Gospel of Mark, unlike Matthew um, or Luke's Gospel, opens without any mention of Jesus' birth or his early life. In Mark, Jesus shows up on the scene fully grown and ready for baptism. There's no history, no background, no polite introductions, no genealogies, nothing. Just John the Baptist, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord and make straight his paths. In fact, our passage this morning begins abruptly. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, who is this John the baptizer? Where did he come from? Well, we get no artful segues from Mark. Then after we meet John, Mark thrusts Jesus upon us, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. But the next two verses are the one that Mark's been chomping at the bit to get to. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, and with you, I am well pleased. This is the first Sunday after Epiphany, the Sunday traditionally called the Baptism of Our Lord. And Mark recounts this story in a fairly straightforward manner. It's short, it's concise, there's no extra window dressing, no flowery language. I mean, first there's John, and then Jesus shows up, John baptizes him, and God identifies Jesus as the Son. Next. Now, it'd be easy to dismiss Mark's rather spare account of the baptism of Jesus as workmanlike and, and, and uninspiring, wouldn't it? But there's a little nugget that's hidden in Mark's prosaic rendering of this, the scene, one that distinguishes it from Matthew and Luke's telling of the story which sets up this short narrative as a crucial signpost for us as we read the Gospel of Mark and what it is he thinks Jesus is up to and what this is all about. And it's found in one word. Now, when Matthew and Mark tell us this story, they, they use tamer Greek word. Uh, the word is anoigo, which means to, to open up. As in, when Jesus came up from the water, suddenly the heavens opened to him. Anoigo. It's, it's nice. It's inviting. Open. It, it's the word that Matthew uses when he says, Ask, and it will be given you. Search, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened for you. Anoigo. Open. It, it's the same word that Luke uses when he says, For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds, and for everyone who knocks, the door will be open. You see, you see what I mean, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's welcoming. I mean, good liberals I'm like Anoigo. It's, it's kind of how we like to see ourselves. But Mark, on the other hand, uses a different word. 
He uses a different word from the anoigo that Matthew and Luke use in their version of the baptism of Jesus. Instead, he uses a much less polite word. Instead of anoigo, Mark uses schizo. It, it means to split or tear apart. That's, of course, uh, the root from which we get schizophrenia. It, literally to split or tear the mind in half. And you say, well, okay, all right. Well, I mean, that's interesting, especially for the word nerds, but uh, Mark chooses tear open instead of open up nicely. What, what difference does that make, really? Well, you know, if that were the only instance of this word, I'd, I'd be just as willing to, to chalk it up to, I don't know, per personal preference, right? If it were the case that Mark just used a, a more violent synonym than Matthew and Luke, well, then it might be worth a mention, but certainly not worth the belaboring of it that I'm obviously doing right now. But you see, here's the thing. This isn't the only time that Mark uses the, this form of schizo. He uses it another time, later on in the gospel. Way in the back, almost at the very end, in fact. In the 15th chapter, Jesus is on the cross, and verse 37 says, And then Jesus gave a loud cry and breathed his last. And the next verse has this. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, the traditional interpretation of this act of the tearing of the temple curtain from top to bottom is that, well, because it's the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, uh, which is God's true home on earth, from the rest of the temple, and that is to say the rest of the world, it's the kind of it's a, it's a kind of a metaphor for God's rending of the veil that separates heaven from earth. That's how it's almost always interpreted. Now, do, do you see what Luke, or excuse me, what Mark has done here? In, in, in critical terms, it's called an inclusio, which is a fancy word for a rhetorical device in which an author uses a word or phrase twice as literary bookends. These bookends, one in the beginning and one at the end, they modify and they interpret everything that lies in between. All right, so enough with the pointy-headed explanations. Mark opens and closes the ministry of Jesus in spectacular fashion. He announces that in Jesus, in his life and work and death, God has come among us. God has torn the veil that formerly separated humanity from the divine. And this tearing is, is, is no sweet opening of a door. I mean, open doors can be closed again. In Jesus, God has ripped the door off the hinges. God has transgressed the boundaries that separated us from God. Now, I want to be really sensitive here because I know that broken down doors is something that we've all witnessed this past week and leaves us raw and in many cases traumatized. But unlike Wednesday, God's breaking in isn't about 
trying to retain the power necessary to exclude the vulnerable. See, when God breaks in, it's about making sure that the people who are usually forgotten, the poor and the powerless, the, 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 the people who try to survive eating only the bread of injustice and drinking the fetid water of bigotry from a cracked cistern, it's then that they finally get to sit in the places of honor at the table that Jesus sets in the new world that God is now creating. Since, since Jesus comes among us, there's no more, you stay on your side uh, of the car and I'll stay on mine and don't cross the invisible line between us. In Jesus, God has announced an intention to barge right into the living room and take a seat in our favorite Barca lounger. Now, at, at first blush, being in the presence of God sounds like what we regularly say we want. Right? I mean, we talk about seeing, seeking God's face and standing in God's presence as, as if that were always a tranquil encounter. Come right in. Take a seat. Have a nice cup of cocoa while you wait. God will be with you shortly. But I'm not so sure. I mean, I think this whole God tearing the heavens open apart to, 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 to get at us thing could, it could turn out to be way more, more than we bargained for. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I, I really like the idea of Jesus' presence sort of ripping the hole uh, in, in the fabric of reality to the extent that it proves we serve a God who cares about us, who will, who will stop at nothing to be reconciled to us, who loves us enough to become like us, a God who breaks through the theological walls we construct to keep everything neat and orderly and everyone in their place. Now that... That feels like good stuff. After Jesus, God is no longer an abstraction out there. God in Jesus is right here. But the problem, as I see it, is that right here doesn't strike me as a place many folks necessarily want God snooping around. <laughs> I mean, what with the way things are in the world, children dying in the night for lack of food and shelter, the, the elderly having to choose between buying their medicine or paying for heat, young black men lining the cells in a bloated correctional system while other young children still languish in cages, LGBTQ folks sent to the back of the very dangerous and punitive social bus, animals factory farmed to make our Big Macs and chicken McNuggets as cheap as possible, Muslims made to feel like Criminals because they choose to worship God differently from us. The environment overwhelmed by our ability to engineer machines, the, the byproducts of which are strangling creation. Political systems that ensure that the wealthy and the powerful retain their status while the poor and the powerless are kept, well, poor and powerless. And a God like that to come right in the midst of all of this, might cause some mischief. I had a, had a guy named John who came to my office a few years back. He was a pretty big guy. Uh, leather jacket, and a bearded, big workman's hands, and he just wanted to talk to the pastor. John's wife had died early, earlier in the summer, 
after a, a nine-year battle with cancer. And he was fighting for the custody of his kids because he, he's got a prison record. Couldn't find work, losing his house, life was a mess. And after fin he finished this awful tale, he, he looked at me, he had tears in his eyes, and he said, Pastor, I don't know what to do. I mean, I keep praying for God to come and show me what I need to do, but I get nothing. I mean, sometimes I wonder if maybe God is for other people, for people who aren't like me. I keep waiting, but I haven't seen anything yet. Well, what am I going to say? I mean, I've taken the class, right? I, I, I got good boundaries. I prayed with him, and then took him to buy some gas. But it occurs to me that John, my new friend, didn't need nice door-opening God. John needed Mark's God, a sky-ripping God, a, a God who's not satisfied with the way things are. So here's the thing. If we've got a heavy investment in keeping the world situated the way it is, well, then maybe having God tear open the heavens isn't going to be that pleasant an experience for some of us. If we think that our biggest responsibility revolves around trying to hang on to what we've got, then maybe having a God who's unconcerned about crossing boundaries is going to sound like bad news to some people. And the church, for its part, has often participated, has a history of participating in the building of walls to mark off its own theological territory. And if God comes just charging in, well, then those theological markers are sure to take a beating, which means we have to contend not only with being in God's presence, but in being in the theologically messy presence of one another. And that's the problem with the boundary breaking of the insurrectionists at the Capitol. They were trying to sew back up the veil of the temple to patch up the tear between heaven and earth that God ripped open to be with us. In order to keep God out there so that God wouldn't step in and start loving all the people they've been taught to hate. But if all the boundaries in your world have been drawn to keep you out, to hold you where you are, to cut you off from life, well, maybe this transgressive, pushy, boundary-crashing God who tears open the heavens and comes to us in Jesus is just the news you've been waiting to hear. Maybe a little holy mischief isn't such a bad thing after all. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, 
Please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.